Japan's former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was killed on July 8th in a shooting. And the Western media has portrayed Shinzo Abe as this angelic figure, this great hero. Now, in this video, I wanted to provide historical context to understand who Shinzo Abe actually was, because he represented a kind of far-right fascistic strain of Japanese politics that has tried to whitewash the genocidal crimes committed by the fascist Japanese empire, not only in World War II, but also before World War II in the early 20th century. Now, of course, I'll preface by emphasizing that I'm not in any way justifying the assassination of Shinzo Abe. In fact, as I'll argue later, I think the assassination is a very bad thing because not only is obviously violence and killing people a bad thing, but it's going to strengthen the very same far-right, fascistic, anti-democratic elements in Japanese society that Shinzo Abe represented. And in this video, I'm going to show who the real Shinzo Abe is. He's not this great Democrat with a lowercase d that he's being portrayed as in Western media. He was one of the leading supporters of this movement to rewrite the history of World War II, to portray the fascist Japanese empire as a benevolent force, to rewrite the history of war criminals and Nazi collaborators like his grandfather. And of course, he did all of this in order to push the new Cold War on China, aggressively trying to remilitarize Japan to wage war on China in collaboration with the United States, of course. So. I'm going to describe who the real Shinzo Abe is and provide political and historical context to understand Japan and what the United States has done to Japan since World War II. Because Japan is still militarily occupied by the United States. There are still 55,000 U.S. troops there. And the United States created what is effectively a one-party regime, an authoritarian right-wing regime that has dominated Japanese politics since 1955, since, since just after the U.S. ended its military occupation, its formal military occupation of Japan in 1952, although in many ways that the informal U.S. military occupation has continued today. And Shinzo Abe, who, has tried, to, who tried to rewrite the history of Japanese fascism and its crimes committed against peoples across Asia, the Holocaust committed by the Japanese fascist empire in collaboration with the Nazis and the Italian fascists, that history has been whitewashed by major right-wing Japanese politicians with the support of the United States. And the whitewash of Shinzo Abe in face, you know, following his tragic death, again, I'm not endorsing it, but the whitewashing of his crimes is part of this process of trying to erase the history of the genocide, the, the Holocaust carried out by the fascist Japanese empire against the people of China and Korea and the Philippines and Myanmar and Malaysia and other parts and Vietnam and other parts of East Asia and Southeast Asia. So I wanna begin this video here describing who Shinzo Abe actually was. If you read Western media, he's portrayed as a great moderate reformer who implemented Abenomics, this neoliberal economic program to try to revive the, the Japanese economy. In reality, 
Shinzo Abe was a far-right ultra-nationalist who was dedicated to rewriting the history of the genocidal crimes committed by the fascist Japanese empire. And there's a good article about this that is called The Religious Cult Secretly Running Japan. It's from back in 2016. And it describes how Shinzo Abe and the vast majority of the members of his cabinet, the vast majority of the ministers in his government were part of a far-right fascistic cult called Nippon Kaigi. Now I should stress, Shinzo Abe is the, he was the longest serving prime minister in the history of Japan. So Shinzo Abe is not a minor figure in Japanese politics. He represents a very significant political current as the longest ever serving prime minister. And he was part of a fascist cult committed to bringing back the empire, bringing back the monarchy, and erasing the history of genocidal crimes committed by the Japanese empire with the support, by the way, of the United States, which the U.S. government has been involved in supporting these fascists in Japan today who are trying to rewrite the history of the crimes committed by the fascist Japanese empire. So let's continue here. I have highlights of this report. So Nippon Kaigi, they describe it as a conservative Shinto cult. That's, of course, underestimating it. It is a fascist cult based on this religion of Shintoism. And, of course, during the fascist Japanese empire, the state-sponsored version of Shintoism, which is not the same form of Shintoism practiced by all Japanese who believe in Shintoism. I'm not saying all people in Japan who believe in Shintoism are fascists, but the state-sponsored form of Shintoism during the Japanese empire was explicitly racist, and it was similar to the kind of racialist fascist ideology of Nazi Germany, you know, this idea of the Aryans and all this nonsense, and it preached, state-sponsored Japanese Shintoism preached that Japanese were a divine race, the Yamato, and all other races were considered inferior, so very similar to Nazi Germany. Now, this cult, Nippon Kaigi, calling it a cult is accurate, but what usually when we say cult, it, it implies that it's a very small fringe group. Nippon Kaigi is extremely influential, especially in the political sector in Japan, the political class. And like I said, the vast majority of the members of the cabinet in Shinzo Abe's government were members of this fascist cult, Nippon Kaigi. Now, what are the goals of this fascist cult, Nippon Kaigi? End Japan's post-war pacifist constitution. So remilitarize Japan to bring back the Japanese empire to wage war on China and also Korea. End sexual equality. So end equality for women. Get rid of foreigners. Void human rights laws. So get rid of human rights laws in Japan and bring back the Japanese empire, this fascist empire that committed crimes all across Asia and committed genocide and a holocaust, which I'm going to talk about later in this video. I mean, brutal, very similar tactics to what the Nazis did. The Nazi holocaust and the Japanese holocaust were very similar. In fact, they were sharing tactics. And what the Nazis did to Jews and communists and the Roma and LGBT people and handicapped people is very similar to what the Japanese fascists did to Chinese and communists and Koreans 
and Russians, by the way. So there, there's a lot to get at here, but let me continue in looking at this article. So to understand Nippon Kaigi, you should, you should understand that, of course, this article was published in 2016 before Donald Trump became president. But imagine if Trump was part of a far-right evangelical group that advocated the creation of a monarchy, the expulsion of immigrants, of course, that's what he wanted to do, the revoking of equal rights for women, restrictions on freedom of speech, and most of his top officials were part of this fascist group. I mean, that's kind of similar to what Trump was, but even more extreme and more explicitly and more explicitly fascist. And this is what Shinzo Abe was. Again, the longest serving prime minister in the modern history of Japan. So Shinzo Abe is also very important detail. The grandson of Nobosuke Kishi, who was J Japan's minister of munitions during World War II. He also oversaw the Japanese fascist puppet regime in Manchuria, in Japanese occupied Manchuria, which is modern day China in parts of the former Soviet Union, but modern day China. And so Shinzo Abe, this beloved Western backed prime minister, his grandfather was a Nazi collaborator and a fascist war criminal involved in supporting the Japanese empire as it committed genocide across Asia. In 1945, he was arrested as a class A war criminal, but the US government pardoned him and the U.S. government helped make him prime minister, the grandfather of Shinzo Abe. So Shinzo Abe follows in a lineage of fascists, literal fascists and war criminals. And one of the reasons that Shinzo Abe became so far right and an ultranationalist trying to rewrite this history is because people constantly criticized his grandfather for being a Nazi collaborating Holocaust carrying out war criminal. And he... he was trying to defend his grandfather and why is why are you being mean to my grandpa so shinzo abe represents this fascist legacy in japanese politics continuing right up to this day with the sponsorship of the united states of the u.s empire shinzo abe is a staunch ultra nationalist and historical revisionist dedicated to trying to rewrite the history of the japanese empire for people who don't know, I'm going to show a map here of the Japanese Empire to understand what we're talking about here. So the Japanese Empire included, of course, modern day Japan, the islands that represent Japan. But it also colonized Korea, Manchuria, which is modern day part of China and also was part of the Soviet Union. It colonized Mongolia after invading Mongolia, and it colonized parts of China as well. Which, this is all part of China today, but then it was also still part of China. The Japanese colonized Taiwan. The Japanese colonized parts of Southeast Asia, including the Philippines, Brunei, Malaysia, parts of modern-day Indonesia, and also Vietnam, Myanmar. So most of Southeast Asia and large parts of East Asia, including Korea, Manchuria, Mongolia, and China, were colonized by the Japanese Empire. This history is not very well known in the West, but the Japanese Empire was brutal and genocidal. And right at the end of World War II, these same imperialists who carried out these crimes across Asia 
were recruited and supported by the United States in the new, the first Cold War, then it was new, the first Cold War against communism and socialism. I should also say that Shinzo Abe and that group, this fascist group, Nippon Kaigi, that he's part of, they deny many of the crimes committed by the Japanese Empire, including genocide and human experimentation, which I'll talk about later. I mean, gruesome stories like out of a horror movie. They deny that those crimes were committed by the Japanese Empire. And they also deny that the Japanese Empire carried out sexual slavery of hundreds of thousands of women from these areas, largely Korea and China, but also the Philippines, Indonesia, Vietnam. This longest serving prime minister of Japan, who's beloved and praised by Western leaders as a moderate, he de actively denied that history of these Japanese war crimes and the sexual trafficking of women and slavery of women. And he and his group, this fascist group, Nippon Kaigi, have been trying to rewrite that history in, in the education system in Japan. And this is a very long article. There's a lot of other information there. But I want to look at other important details about Shinzo Abe. Here's an article that was published in The Guardian back in 2014, titled Neo-Nazi Photos Pose Headache for Shinzo Abe. Now, that's a, a major understatement. That's a major euphemism. So what this article shows is that top officials in Shinzo Abe's government were working with, allied with, a literal neo-Nazi leader, the top neo-Nazi leader in Japan. And again, Shinzo Abe is a beloved, was a beloved Western-backed leader. We, we, he was portrayed as this great moderate who implemented this neoliberal economic program of Abenomics and blah, blah, blah. Top members in his government that he appointed were working with the top neo-Nazi in Japan. Here, here's, here's the opening of this article. Barely a week after Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe overhauled his administration amid flagging popularity, two of his senior colleagues have been forced to distance themselves from right-wing extremism after photographs emerged of them posing with the country's leading neo-Nazi, including the internal affairs minister was, post was posed alongside Kazunari Yamada, the leader of the National Socialist Japanese Workers' Party, a neo-Nazi group. So, once again, we're talking about literal fascists here. I'm not, when I say they're fascists, that's not an insult. It is a, an accurate description. And what happened after World War II? I'm going to talk about the horrific crimes of the Japanese Empire in World War II and the horrific, horrific crime committed by the U.S. Empire in the nuclear bombing, the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that killed between 100 and 200,000 and 200,000 Japanese civilians. I'm going to talk about why the U.S. did that. That was an act of aggression against the Soviet Union. That was the first act of the Cold War. That was the U.S. massacring 200,000 Japanese civilians in order to prevent Japan from going socialist because Japan had a very strong socialist movement and in order to prevent Japan from becoming an ally of the Soviet Union. But in addition to all of that, the United States, after World War II, it rehabilitated many former fascists in Japan and Nazi collaborators and put them in the government. The U.S. occupied government 
in, that was created by the United States until officially it ended the occupation in 1952. And in addition to the U.S. backing these former fascist war criminals who have been part of the empire in Japan, the U.S. also, U.S. intelligence agencies like the OSS, which became the CIA, also supported former, or not former, it also supported Japanese mafia forces, Japanese organized crime, gangsters. And there is a really good description of this by a friend of the show, Aaron Good. Aaron Good is an historian, a great scholar, and the author of the book American, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. And I have a podcast series with Aaron Good talking about the history of the U.S. empire and the history of the U.S. deep state. And Japan plays an important role in this. And Aaron Good, in his book, American Exception, describes how the U.S. empire rehabilitated fascist war criminals and organized crime from the Yakuza that were rescued by the CIA to reestablish an anti-communist right-wing government under U.S. control after World War II. So I'm going to read this, this excerpt here from his book because it really succinctly describes the U.S. strategy of supporting these fascists in Japan who created the government today. And Shinzo Abe is, is literally a descendant of these literal fascists. So here's, here I'm going to read this. Japan's post-war, it's post-World War II political system was even more dramatic, dramatically dominated through financing by deep political forces, that is, forces of organized crime and, and corporate interests and big corporations. During the Second Sino-Japanese War, that is, when Japan invaded China in 1937, beginning World War II in Asia, two years before Nazi Germany invaded Poland. So for the people of China, between 10, and million, between 10 million and 20 million Chinese people died in World War II in the, in the Japanese fascist holocaust. And for them, World War II began two years before it began in the European theater. But anyway, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, that is Japan's invasion of China in 1937, Yakuza figure, that is organized crime gangster, and ultra-rightist Yoshio Kodama was made a commissioned officer eventually a rear admiral in the Japanese Navy. During the war, he amassed a fortune by selling the gold, diamonds, and platinum that he had procured in China through the traffic of opium and liquor, as well as outright looting. Of course, J the Japanese empire was colonizing China at this time, as I'll show a map of in a second. So this Japanese gangster who was part of the Imperial Army transferred vast quantities of stolen diamonds and platinum to an associate before going to prison at the end of war, the end of the war, as a class A war criminal. But Kodama was released in 1948 with the support of the US government. I'll talk about in a minute here about how the US government did mass releases of all of these fascist war criminals and allowed them to help create the government, the US occupied right-wing regime in Japan, because the US was very scared that the Japanese socialists were very powerful and they could take over the government. And the US government supported fascists, literal Nazi collaborators and fascists over the socialists because the US empire and the capitalist interests that drive the US empire on Wall Street have always preferred fascism over socialism. So the CIA reportedly is what led to this fascist war criminal and gangster being released in Japan. Kodama then went on to become the CIA's top asset. Again, the CIA's top asset in Japan 
was a former fascist war criminal in the Imperial Army and a gangster who, who trafficked opium and stole resources of Japanese colonized, colonized China when Japan was carrying out war crimes and genocide in China. So funds from the, the sale of this material, including opium, or estimated around $175 million, were used to establish and fund Japan's Liberal Democratic Party, which is, you know, a, a right-wing party, a far-right party. It is not a left-wing party in any way. It is a right-wing party that has dominated Japanese politics almost without exception since 1955. The right-wing LDP, Liberal Democratic Party, dominated Japanese politics for decades, making Japan into a de facto one-party state, firmly pro-U.S. and anti-neutrality in the first Cold War. In post-war Japan, Kodama, the CIA asset and former fascist war criminal, he used Yakuza gangs, that's the mafia gangs, to crack down on labor unions and left-wing groups that opposed the U.S.-Japan security pact. So this represents this fascist regime that the U.S. basically installed after the end of World War II. And it wasn't fascist in name, but basically in practice it was fascist. And why did the U.S. do that? because it was afraid that the Japanese socialists, the Japan Socialist Party, were very powerful. And the Japanese socialists were on the verge of taking power after World War II. So the U.S. released all of these former fascists from prison who were wanted to be war criminals. The Soviet Union tried many of the Japanese war criminals and executed some of them or put them in gulags, in, in prison camps to work. The U.S. released it did mass releases of Japanese fascists and war criminals and gangsters because the, U the U.S. used them, the CIA used them against the Japanese socialists to prevent Japan from going socialist and becoming an ally of the Soviet Union in World War II. Here is a mainstream corporate media rag, The Economist, discussing how, admitting how Japan since the U.S. created its government after World War II, has basically been an authoritarian one-party regime. This article is titled, How the LDP Dominates Japan's Politics. It notes the party has been, in almost, has been in power almost continuously since 1955. That does not mean voters are happy. Since its founding in 1955, Japan's Liberal Democratic Party has dominated the country's politics. It has ruled uninterrupted excluding two brief stints in, from 1993 to 1994 and 2009 to 2012. So since 1955, Japan has been ruled by one party, a right-wing corrupt party linked to fascist war criminals and organized crime backed by the CIA. It, this this right-wing party has dominated Japanese politics since 1955, and the only exception was five years. So Japan is an authoritarian, one-party, white right-wing regime. And that's why in Japanese elections, voter turnout is consistently very low. In the 2021 election, voter turnout was only around 55%. The people of Japan are so tired of their corrupt, authoritarian, right-wing government linked to fascism and organized crime. Now, now, how did the LDP keep... Of course, they claim it's not authoritarian. It is authoritarian. They claim it's not authoritarian because The Economist is a propaganda outlet of British intelligence. 
Now they say, how has the LDB, LDP kept such a firm grip on power? Well, the LDP emerged in the wake of America's post-war occupation of Japan in the crucible of the Cold War, the first Cold War. After leftist forces united into a single Japan Socialist Party, Japanese conservatives, backed by the CIA, decided to merge the two main right-wing parties, the Liberal Party and the Japan Democratic Party. And ever since then, they have dominated Japanese politics in a one-party right-wing regime known as the 1955 system. Ever since 1955, Japan has basically been a one-party state backed by the United States. It is a U.S.-backed authoritarian regime. Now, when I say that former fascists have quite literally governed Japan's U.S.-backed regime since, since the end of World War II, that is not hyperbole. Literal fascist war criminals. And one of them is the former grandfather of Shinzo Abe, Nobusuke Kishi. This is a, where is it? Where does this report come come from? It comes from the U.S. government itself, declassified by the CIA in 2005. This is a, a formerly confidential CIA document, and it was released as part of the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act. So, this is acknowledging this Japanese fascist who collaborated with the Nazis, and this is the CIA internal document. They note that Nobusuke Kishi, again, this was the grandfather of Shinzo Abe, the longest serving prime minister in Japan, in Japanese history. Nobusuke Kishi, they were describing him as he was influential in the LDP. He comes from a political family. And by the way, he helped to create the LDP, LD, the Liberal Democratic Party, this right-wing party that has controlled Japanese politics since 1955. Of course, Shinzo Abe was also part of this. Now, the CIA describes him affectionately as, quote, a fervent anti-communist. Kishi has wholeheartedly supported Japan's alignment with the free world, supposedly, especially the United States, South Korea, and Taiwan. He has reluctantly supported Japanese efforts to normalize relations with the People's Republic of China, but of course he was very much against that. Kishi is a president of the America Japan Society, the America Japan Society, and an active member of the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. And of course, his grandson was Shinzo Abe. So this is a literal fascist war criminal who oversaw the Japanese Empire's genocidal puppet regime in Jap Japanese-occupied Manchuria. And then he became prime minister and was staunchly backed by the U.S. Empire and president of the America-Japan Society. So quite literally, after World War II, the U.S. rehabilitated and embraced all of these former Nazi collaborators and fascists. Here is another report from the CIA's website, CIA.gov. This is another formally confidential, uh, uh, confidential document about Nobusuke Kishi, Nobusuke Kishi, who is the grandfather of Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister of Japan. This was released also under the Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, and it's this cables from 1983. They talk about how he's a very influential figure in the ruling Liberal Democratic Party, and they say. According to U.S. Embassy officials in Tokyo, 
Kishi is a fervent anti-communist and strongly favors strengthening Japan's defense forces. They say he believes that friendship between the United States and Japan is essential to world peace. He is favorably disposed toward both the Republic of Korea, that is South Korea, and Taiwan, and was reluctant to see Japan reestablish relations with China in the mid-1970s. They note that his daughter was married to former minister Shintaro Abe of Shinzo Abe's family. So once again, this is the literal fascist war criminal Nazi collaborator who led Japan with U.S. backing and is the grandfather of Shinzo Abe, the longest ever serving prime minister of Japan, also a Western darling, a Western imperial darling. They note the CIA admitted that Nobusuke Kishi, Shinzo Abe's grandfather, was a cabinet minister during World War II and was imprisoned for three years after the war as a suspected war criminal. But he was released with the backing of the U.S. government. The U.S. government released him from prison, even though they knew he was a Nazi collaborator and war criminal. And then in 1957, he became prime minister on a platform of U.S.-Japanese friendship. So once again, these are the literal fascists the U.S. empire put in power in Japan to prevent Japan from going socialist. Socialist. They note that, that Kishi was forced to resign in 1960 after riots occur, occurred because he ratified the U.S.-Japanese Society Treaty. So the people of Japan didn't want to be a, a, basically a U.S. colony, which is what these fascists turned Japan into after World War II. That's why the U.S. government and the, and the CIA had to recruit all of these former fascist war criminals and gangsters in organized crime because they knew that the, that the left in Japan was very powerful and had a lot of popular support among Japanese people. That's why there were riots against the U.S.-Japan military agreement. So they had to install these fascists because they were the ones who were the most pro-U.S. because they hated communists. And once again, U.S. imperialism has always hated socialists way more than fascists. Now, I want to talk about the genocidal crimes committed by the Japanese empire, the Holocaust committed by the Japanese empire. Here is a report in a medical journal, the National Library of Medicine. This is as mainstream as it gets. And the title of this, uh, this scholarly scientific report uh, article from 2006 is the United States cover-up of Japanese wartime medical atrocities, complicity committed in the national interest and two proposals for contemporary action. Here's the summary. To monopolize the scientific data gathered by Japanese physicians and researchers from vivisections that is cutting people open alive and other barbarous, exper bar barbarous experiments performed on living humans in biological warfare programs such as Unit 731. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Immediately after World War II, the U.S. government secretly granted those involved, that is, these fascist war criminals, immunity from war crimes prosecution. The U.S. also withdraw vital information, withdrew vital information from the International Military Tribunal from the Far East and for the Far East and publicly denounced otherwise irrefutable evidence from other sources 
such as the Russian trial, that is the Soviets' trial against the Japanese fascist war criminals, which is known as the Khabarovsk trial. So this, the, the socialist Soviet Union, it did have a war crimes trial against these Japanese fascists. The U.S., on the other hand, the so-called U.S. democracy, rehabilitated Japanese war criminals and fascists, recruited them, used their research that they gathered through vivisections, and installed them in government, creating basically a new fascist regime in Japan, which the current right-wing regime in Japan is, is, is the direct descendant of these fascists. Here is a blood-curdling article in the New York Times from 1995. And I do need to give a trigger warning here because this is like a horror movie. Reading this is like watching a Saw movie. This is insane. But unlike Saw, this is not a, a horrible movie. This is real history. These are objective historical facts that the fascist Japanese empire committed. And again, you got to have a strong stomach to read some of this stuff. So get ready for this. This is pretty brutal. This article, ironically, was written by Nicholas Kristof, a you know U.S. government propagandist. But 1995 in the New York Times titled Unmasking Horror, a special report. They describe, they open the article describing a Japanese war criminal who is part of this brutal medical lab where they did experimental treatments on people, biological warfare, called Unit 731. This is the fascist Japanese empire's biological warfare unit. And they describe how this Japanese war criminal cut open a 30-year-old man who is tied naked to a bed and they dissected him alive without anesthetic, without any pain medication. The Japanese fascists would kidnap communists and Chinese people in general, but especially communists, as I'll show in this article. They would find communists, they would kidnap them, and then they would literally carve them up alive. They would dissect them alive without pain medication. The man who did this was a medical assi assistant in the Japanese army in China during World War II. So all of the things that the Nazis carried out against Jews and Roma and communists and socialists and labor organizers and LGBT people, that's also what the Japanese fascists did to Chinese people and Koreans and communists and others during World War II and before World War II. So we're talking about vivisections carried out by the Japanese fascist empire. The Chinese prisoner had been deliberately infected with the plague as part of a research project, the full horror of which is only now emerging in the 1990s, to develop plague bombs for use in World War II. After infecting him, the Japanese researchers decided to cut him open to see what the disease did to his insides. No anesthetic was used. The research program was one of the great secrets of Japan during and after World War II, a vast project to develop weapons of biological warfare, including plague, anthrax, cholera, 
and other pathogens. Again, this was called Unit 731 of the Japanese Imperial Army. It conducted research by experimenting on humans and field testing plague bombs by dropping them on Chinese cities to see whether they could start plague outbreaks. They could. This was part of a genocide committed by the Japanese Empire in World War II. Between 14 and 20 million Chinese died in World War II in a Japanese Holocaust. At least 3,000 people, although that's a very conservative estimate, other accounts say many times more, were killed in medical experiments carried out by the fascist Japanese Empire. None survived. But what happened after World War II? Uncle Sam, who supposedly cares so much about freedom and democracy, recruited these fascist Japanese scientists and war criminals who literally cut people open and did vivisections and spread plague bombs and mi killed millions of Chinese people in World War II. The U.S. government recruited them. Here is the New York Times admitting this objective historical fact. This research was kept secret after the end of the war, in part because the United States Army granted immunity from war crimes prosecution to the, the Japanese doctors in exchange for their data. Japanese and American documents show that the United States helped cover up the human experimentation. Instead of putting the ringleaders on trial like the Soviet Union did, the, the socialists in the Soviet Union, instead, the U.S. government gave these fascist war criminals stipends. I don't know how this doesn't, this makes me so angry. The U.S. empire did not defeat fascism. The U.S. empire recruited the fascist war criminals. The U.S. empire absorbed fascism. The U.S. empire is the Fourth Reich. Everything that they teach you in U.S. public schools about history is false. The U.S. empire is the Fourth Reich. They recruited Nazis and fascists after World War II to wage a war around the world against socialism because they saw fascists and Nazis as allies in the capitalist genocidal war on socialism. The U.S. empire committed genocide in Vietnam, killing three million Vietnamese people in a genocidal war against socialism. The U.S. military committed genocide in Korea, killing three million Koreans, including using biological warfare to crush socialism. The U.S. empire propped up fascist dictatorships around the world to crush socialism. The U.S. empire and NATO recruited Nazis to crush socialism. The U.S. empire is the Fourth Reich. They did not defeat the Third Reich. The Soviet Union defeated the Third Reich. 26 million Soviets died in World War II, sacrificing their lives bravely to defeat fascism. And then the U.S. government absorbed fascism. The U.S. government, the U.S. empire is the direct descendant of fascism. The U.S. empire absorbed the architecture of Nazi Germany, and it absorbed the, in the infrastructure of Japanese fascism. This makes me so angry because everything that I was taught in school in the United States was a lie. Everything they still teach in U.S. schools is a lie when it comes to the U.S. role in World War II and 
in the first Cold War after. The U.S. government is the Fourth Reich. It absorbed Nazism and fascism. And Shinzo Abe is a direct descendant of this fascist policy. That's why he went to his, he went to his death defending the fascist Japanese empire, which committed genocide and vivisections, cutting people open alive to do experiments on them. And the U.S. government supported him. Barack Obama supported him. Donald Trump supported him. Joe Biden is praising Shinzo Abe now as this great moderate. The, the grandson of a Nazi collaborator and a fascist war criminal. That's what the U.S. empire truly represents. The continuation of fascism, not democracy, not human rights. The United States was founded on the most massive genocide in human history, killing over 100 million indigenous people. Then it was based on slavery of millions of Africans. And then it was based on Jim Crow, which inspired the Nazis. The Nazis were inspired by U.S. apartheid laws and the white supremacist laws in the United States. The U.S. has never been a force of anti-fascism. The U.S. has always been a force in support of fascism. Anyway, I'll try to uh, be a little, a little more calm here, but reading these articles just fills me with rage. How can you not read this article and just be so angry at these crimes committed by these fascists who committed genocide? The Japanese fascists who were literally allied with Nazi Germany. They were literal Nazi allies carrying out tactics just like the Nazis. And everyone knows that the Nazis were bad in the West. Obviously, they were awful. But no one knows this history in the United States of the Japanese fascists. Why? Because the U.S. government recruited them after World War II. That's why. They don't teach this history in U.S. schools because the U.S. government absorbed Nazism and fascism and used it as weapons to wage a war on socialism around the world in order to save capitalism. Capitalism used Nazism and fascism to save itself from socialism around the world. Anyway, I'll be a little more calm here and I'm going to continue reading from this article, which again, I warn you, it's like a horror movie. One advantage of China from the Japanese empire's point of view was the availability of research subjects on whom germs could be tested. These subjects were called marutas or logs, and most of them were communist sympathizers or criminals. The majority were Chinese, but many were Russians, that is Soviets, expatriates living in China. So once again, we see that the fascists would go out and look for communists in order to do live experiments on them, like a Saw movie. Well, it also shows what tied together the U.S. empire and the Japanese empire. Anti-communism is what unified them. Anti-communism is what brings together the liberals and the fascists. A Western man, they're describing a Japanese medical unit in, medical worker in this unit 731. He saw a foot, a six foot high glass jar 
of a Western man who was pickled in formaldehyde. The man had been cut into two pieces vertically. He guesses that the man was Russian because there were many Russians living in the area. So Soviet. So these Japanese fascists, they literally cut a Russian in half and pickled him like a horror movie. Like the hills have eyes. The U.S. government supported this! H how much worse can someone be? These are literally the worst crimes that can be committed by humanity, by anyone in humanity. Live human experimentation and genocide and Holocaust. And the U.S. government, which claims to speak on behalf of freedom and democracy, supported this. Literal human experimentation, vivisection, putting people, cutting people in half when they're still alive and putting them in jars. The Unit 731 headquarters, once again, these war criminals from Unit 731 were not only pardoned by the U.S., they were paid, they were recruited by the United States. They became members of the Japanese government occupied by the United States, the puppet government created by the United States. The headquarters contained many other jars with specimens, including feet, head, internal organs, all neatly labeled. I saw samples with labels saying American, asterisk on that, there's no evidence of that, English and Frenchmen, but most were Chinese, Koreans, and Mongolians. So the majority of the jars full of human organs were from Chinese, Koreans, and Mongolians. The Japanese Empire would kidnap Chinese, Koreans, and Mongolians and do live experiments on them, and then it would pickle their organs. And the U.S. government supported this. There is no evidence that Americans were among the victims in the Unit 731 compound. Now, that's not all. Not only did the fascist Japanese empire carry out human experimentation operations, the Japanese army also conducted field tests to see whether biological warfare would work outside the laboratory. Japanese planes dropped plague-infected fleas in eastern China over Ningbo and over Changde in north-central China, and plague outbreaks were later reported. So the Japanese empire carried out biological warfare on Chinese people. Japanese troops also dropped cholera and typhoid cultures in wells and ponds. In 1942, germ warfare specialists from Japan who were later recruited by the United States, distributed dysentery, cholera, and typhoid in Shijiang province in China. More than 200,000 Chinese were killed in germ warfare field experiments. Plague-infected animals were released in China. How do we know some of this stuff? Some of these experiments were discussed in an 18-page report prepared in 1945 
and kept by a senior Japanese military officer. It includes a summary of the unit's research. The report was prepared in English for American intelligence officials. Once again, these war criminals who carried out the most grotesque experiments that you can't even imagine outside of horror movies, they were recruited by the United States after World War II. In other experiments, the Japanese fascists took Chinese people outside in freezing weather and left them with exposed arms drenched with water until a guard decided that frostbite had set in. They were testing frostbite. Doctors also experimented on a three-day-old baby, measuring the temperature of the three-day-old baby with a needle stuck inside the infant's middle finger. When this fascist was put in charge of a clinic, he said he periodically asked the police for a communist to dissect, and they sent one over. So once again, this is what brings together the fascist Japanese empire and the Fourth Reich, that is the U.S. empire, anti-communism. These experiments were carried out on communists because according to the Nazis, the Japanese fascists, and the U.S. empire, the U.S. imperialists, communists are not human beings. That's what brings together U.S. imperialism and Nazism and fascism in Japan and Italy. They're all unified by their hatred of socialists and communists because they see capitalism as the most important thing in human history. They're willing to commit genocide to, to save capitalism. Japan also used test tubes to infect the wells of villages in communist-held territory in China. So once again, communists to them were not human beings. So that's why the U.S. government recruited them, because the U.S. knew that the Japanese fascists would be the most reliable anti-communists in the first Cold War. And here are a few other notes in this article. Again, this is the New York Times. This is as mainstream as it gets. Partly because the Americans helped cover up the biological warfare program in exchange for its data, General Shiro Ishii, the head of Unit 731, was allowed to live peacefully until his death from throat cancer in 1959. Once again, the general who oversaw live human experimentation, cutting communists open alive, committing genocide against Chinese people, poisoning their wells, sending plague-infected biological warfare weapons. This guy who oversaw all these war crimes was supported by the U.S. government. These war criminals who carried out genocide in Japan, they saw their careers flourish in the post-war period, rising to positions that included the governor of Tokyo, president of the Japan Medical Association, and the head of the Japan Olympic Committee. Once again, I repeat, the current government of Japan is literally the direct descendants 
of the fascists. The U.S. government did not defeat fascism in World War II. The U.S. government rehabilitated fascism. It recruited fascism. It absorbed fascism, which, by the way, as I'll talk about in a second here, is exactly what the U.S. did with Nazi Germany as well. Here, at the end of this article, they quote a Japanese farmer who was involved in these human experiments. And he said, oh, of course there were experiments on children, but probably their fathers were spies, justifying it. There's a possibility this could happen again, he said, smiling, because in a war, you have to win. These were the fascists recruited by the United States after World War II. They are the people who, have, who governed Japan under the U.S. military occupation, and their descendants continue to govern Japan to this day. Now, I mentioned that not only did the U.S. government recruit Japanese fascists, the U.S. government also recruited Nazi war criminals. This is very well known. Here is NPR, U.S. state media. 2014 article titled, The Secret Operation to Bring Nazi Scientists to America. So just as these Japanese fascists carried out human experiments on communists and Chinese people and Koreans and Mongolians, similarly, Nazi scientists carried out human experiments on Jews and communists and LGBT people and Roma people and people of African descent. Well, they were then recruited by the United States after World War II. Not even after World War II, at the, before World War II even ended. This is revealed in a book by a very mainstream journalist named Annie Jacobson, and it's called Operation Paperclip, the secret U.S. intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. In the fall of 1944, before World War II ended, when the Soviets were sacrificing bravely 26 million people to crush Nazi Germany, the Soviets defeated Nazi Germany, not the United States. Until the U.S. entered the European theater of war, which was not for until four years into World War II, for the first four years of World War II, all Nazi casualties were caused by the Soviet Union and its allies. Of course, the U.S. was allied, but not really. The Soviet Union, the, the, when I say the Soviet Union and the allies, I mean the Yugoslav partisans who were communists, the Italian communists. The communists were responsible for all deaths and casualties and injuries of the Nazis up until four years into the war. And then finally, when the U.S. entered the European theater, Finally, there were two fronts, but all in all in World War II, three quarters or more of Nazi casualties were caused on the Eastern Front by the Soviet Union and also the Italian communists and the Yugoslav partisan communists. Communists defeated fascism in World War II, not capitalists. Capitalists recruited the fascists after World War II. The U.S. government 
and Western European capitalist governments recruited the former Nazis and fascists, as I'll show in a second here. In the fall of 1944, before World War II ended, the United States and its capitalist allies, not the Soviet Union, the capitalists, launched a secret mission codenamed Operation Paperclip. The aim was to find and preserve German weapons, including biological and chemical agents. They decided the United States needed to bring the Nazi scientists themselves to the U.S. Thus began a mission to recruit top Nazi doctors, physicists, and chemists, including top Nazi war criminal Werner von Braun, who went on to design the rockets that took man to the moon. He helped oversee NASA. NASA was quite literally created by former Nazi scientists. The U.S. government went to great lengths to hide the pasts of Nazi German scientists they brought to the United States. There began a propaganda campaign by the U.S. government to whitewash the pasts of the scientists who they very much knew were ardent Nazis. Once again, the U.S. government did not defeat Nazism in World War II. The U.S. government absorbed Nazism. The U.S. government rehabilitated Nazism. And not just the U.S. government, also the Western European capitalist regimes. Here is a report in a German media outlet, the local.de, titled, most of post-war justice ministry were Nazis. Between 1949 and 1973, 90 of the West German justice ministries, 170 leading judges and lawyers were former members of the Nazi party, according to a government report. This is a new study revealing that over half of the leadership of the West German, that is capitalist West German justice ministry, were former members of the Nazi party. This is a government report. There was a very large continuity between Nazi Germany and capitalist West Germany backed by the United States. Those are the words of the former justice minister of Germany who commissioned the study. 34 of those 90 were members of the Nazi party's original paramilitary, the SA group, which helped Adolf Hitler rise to power and participated in Kristallnacht. So these were ideological hardened Nazis. They didn't just join the Nazi regime when the Nazis were in power. They were part of the Nazis from the very beginning, a large percentage of them. In 1957 alone, 77% of senior ministry officials were former members of Hitler's party, a higher proportion even than during the Third Reich from 1933 to 1945. Once again, the U.S. and the Western capitalist powers did not defeat Nazism or fascism. They absorbed the Nazism and fascism. They recruited the Nazis and fascists. The communists defeated fascism and Nazism. The communists had a denazification program. East Germany had thorough denazification. The Soviet Union had thorough denazification. The socialists and the communists, they defeated 
and purged the fascists and Nazis. The capitalists, the U.S., who supposedly care about freedom and democracy, they recruited and hired the Nazis and fascists. Here's another report from German state media, DW. This is German state media admitting Germany's BND spy agency employed Heinrich Himmler's daughter. Heinrich Himmler was, of course, one of the top Nazi officials. Some people say he was the second in command of the Third Reich after Hitler himself. Germany's BND spy agency admitted that top Nazi Heinrich Himmler's daughter, Gudrun Berwitz, was in its employment in the 1960s. The revelation signs further light on the BND's Nazi network after World War II and in the first Cold War. Germany's Federal Intelligence Service, the BND, confirmed it briefly employed the daughter of top Nazi Heinrich Himmler in the 1960s. The 1960s. When the U.S. is still an apartheid regime. When the civil rights movement is happening and the U.S. government is murdering black people for daring to demand equal rights. It was also recruiting Nazis and not just the German intelligence services, also the CIA was recruiting Nazis. This is the Gellin organization, which you're never going to hear about in, in history classes in U.S. schools. So the daughter of Himmler worked for German intelligence at the time when it was led by Reinhard Galen. Reinhard Galen was an ex-World War II German military intelligence chief in Eastern Europe. That is, he was the chief of Nazi German intelligence on the Eastern Front, which was the most important intelligence unit in Nazi Germany. He was the top Nazi spy overseeing the war against the Soviet Union in which in which Nazi Germany killed 26 million Soviets. For context, 400,000 Americans died in World War II. 400,000 British, British soldiers died in World War II. 26 million Soviets died because the Soviet Union defeated Nazism, not the U.S., and not the Western capitalist powers. And after World War II, even before it ended, the CIA and its predecessor, the OSS, recruited former Nazi chiefs like Reinhard Galen, who was recruited by the CIA to work against the Soviets and the communists. This is German state media DW admitting this undeniable history that the CIA, the U.S. government, allied with Nazi war criminals against socialists during the first cold war the cia backed galen organization was made up of former nazi intelligence and military officers with connections and experience in eastern europe and anti-communist activities that is they carried out the nazi holocaust they carried out genocide and then the cia recruited them to wage the first cold war against socialism around the world its members the CIA-backed Galen organization helped create German intelligence, GND, and Galen himself, this former Nazi spy chief backed by the CIA, led 
West Germany's spy agency, the BND, from 1956 until 1968. Still today, Germany's spy agency is the BND. So I mentioned that in World War II, 26 million Soviets died, while also between 14 and 20 million Chinese died. The same tactics that the, the Nazis carried out in Europe were the tactics that the Japanese fascists carried out in Asia. Here's an article in the Pacific Standard magazine. China lost 14 million people in World War II. Why is this forgotten? Of course, 14 million is the lower end estimate. The estimate is between 14 and 20 million Chinese died in World War II. Why is it forgotten? Because the U.S. government recruited the Japanese fascist that killed 20 million Chinese. That's why it's forgotten. Because it's inconvenient for the narrative of the U.S. empire, which absorbed Nazi Germany and absorbed fascist Japan. And then it put those Japanese war criminals in power after World War II. So I've spent a lot of time here detailing the horrific atrocities committed by the Japanese fascists and talking about how the U.S. government supported them after World War II. But people might say, well, you know, the U.S. did wage war on Japan and it dropped two nuclear bombs on Japan. That's true. And by the way, even the fascists didn't drop nuclear weapons. They committed horrific genocide around the world. Only the United States has dropped nuclear weapons on a civilian population. And not once, but twice. So it once again shows the U.S. is the Fourth Reich. The U.S. absorbed Nazi Germany. It absorbed fascist Japan. And it is the only country in history that has used nuclear weapons, not once, but twice, on a civilian population. Now, how many people died in the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? A low estimate of 100,000. A more accurate estimate is probably 200,000 people. Civilians. Massacred. Slaughtered. By the U.S. so-called democracy. Now, this isn't in any way to downplay the horrific atrocities carried out by the fascist Japanese empire. I've obviously spent an hour talking about that here. But... Why, why would I say that it's a crime? Not only did the U.S. government massacre 200,000 Japanese civilians, they weren't the government, they weren't the military, they were civilians. But furthermore, it was a horrific atrocity because the U.S. nuclear bombing of Japan was politically motivated. It was not motivated to end the Japanese fascist empire. It was the first act of the first Cold War. It was a sign to the Soviet Union. The U.S. nuked Japan in order to prevent Japan from going socialist and to prevent the Soviet Union from having influence in Japan. There is clear evidence of this from the mouth of the U.S. government itself. This is not just my analysis. So let me start here with a little-known document, which is very important historically. This is the United States Strategic Bombing Survey. You can find this at the Harry Truman Library and Museum. 
This is part of trumanlibrary.gov. This is part of the U.S. government's National Archives. So, what happened? In World War II, the U.S. Department of War, which was a much more accurate name, which became the De Department of Defense, the Pentagon, so the U.S. military. In World War II, the U.S. Department of War created something called the Strategic Bombing Survey to study the bombing that it carried out in World War II. And after the U.S. atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, the U.S. government itself admitted in its own strategic bombing survey that the U.S. nuclear bombing of Japan was not necessary. It was politically motivated. It was a sign to threaten the Soviet Union. It was not necessary to end the war. That's not, those not, that's not just my analysis. That is the undeniable truth admitted by the U.S. government. Again, this is from a U.S. government website. Here, let me, let me zoom in. This is the text from the U.S. Department of War's Strategic Bombing Survey. They say here, quote, It seems clear that even without the atomic bombing attacks, air supremacy over Japan could have exerted sufficient pressure to bring about unconditional surrender and obviate the need for invasion. So once again, that's them acknowledging the nuclear bombing was not necessary. Here they say it as clear as day. Again, this is the mouth of the U.S. government. Quote, Based on a detailed investigation of all of the facts and supported by the testimony of the surviving Japanese leaders involved, it is the U.S. government survey's opinion that certainly prior to December 31st of 1945 and in all probability prior to November 1st of 1945, here, is the exact words of the U.S. government. Quote, Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia, that is the Soviet Union, had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated. Let me, let me repeat that. Japan would have surrendered even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped. This is the mouth of the U.S. government admitting, killing two, liquidating, massacring 200,000 Japanese civilians was not necessary to end the war. Japan was on the verge of surrendering anyway. Talk about fascism. The U.S. government massacred 200,000 civilians and why did it do that? Why did the U.S. government massacre 200,000 civilians? Like I said, it was a sign to the Soviet Union. It was the first act of the first Cold War. It was the United States telling the Soviet Union, Japan is going to be our colony. We are going to control Japan. Socialism is not going to take root in Japan. Japan is not going to be a Soviet ally. If you don't believe me, here once again is, here are words from the mouth of the U.S. government. This is the Manhattan Project archive created by the U.S. Department of Energy at osti.gov. All, by the way, every single source that I quote in this video 
is has the link at the top of it. So if you're watching the video, you can check out the link I have at the top. And if you're listening as a podcast version, I'm going to post a link in the show notes and it's going to have a link to every single article that I cited in this video or podcast and you can get every single link. But also if you watch the video, you can see at the top is there is a link to every single source that I'm citing. So once again, this is from the mouth of the U.S. government. This is, I'm citing the U.S. government here admitting why the U.S dropped two nuclear bombs and killed 200,000 Japanese civilians. It wasn't because they thought it would make Japan surrender. They knew Japan was already going to surrender. This is why they actually did it. Harry Truman, when he received the word of the success of the Trinity test of nuclear weapons, his need for the help of the Soviet Union in the war against Japan was greatly diminished. Truman and his advisors were now not sure if they wanted Soviet help. Soviet leader Joseph Stalin had promised to join the war against Japan by August 15th, 1945. But Truman and his advisors were not sure they wanted the Soviet Union to help. If they used the atomic bomb, and that made victory possible without an, a Soviet invasion, then accepting Soviet help would only invite them, the Soviets, into the discussions regarding the post-war fate of Japan. That's why the U.S. killed 200,000 Japanese civilians by dropping atomic bombs. It was to prevent the Soviet Union from having influence in Japan after World War II. It was to preventing Japan from becoming socialist. It was to turn Japan into a U.S. colony, which basically it still is today. Let me go down here. Again, this is the, this is the mouth of the U.S. government. These are the words of the U.S. government. Other historians argue that Japan would have surrendered even without the use of the atomic bomb, and that in fact Truman and his advisors used Truman and his advisors used the bomb only in an effort to intimidate the Soviet Union. This is the U.S. Department of Energy admitting that this was a sign to intimidate the Soviet Union. This was the first act of the Cold War, the first Cold War, and here. Once again, the U.S. government admits, quote, Truman hoped to avoid having to share the administration of Japan with the Soviet Union. Here is history.com, which is very pro, I mean, propaganda. It's just propaganda. It's very pro-imperialist. They, they admit it too. This article from 2022 is titled, The Hiroshima bombing did not end World War, did not just end World War II. It kickstarted the Cold War. The colossal power of the atomic bomb drove the world's two leading superpowers into a new confrontation. Here's another article in a mainstream outlet. This is as mainstream as it gets in Washington. Foreign Policy Magazine. Very mainstream. They say, the bomb didn't beat Japan. Stalin did. It was not the nuclear bombing that the U.S. carried out that, that defeated Japan. It was the Soviet Union that defeated Japan. The U.S. dropped nuclear bombs on Japan in order to prevent the Soviet Union from having influence in Japan and preventing Japan from going socialist. The U.S. massacred 200,000 Japanese civilians in order to protect capitalism. This is a mainstream historian, Ward Wilson, 
writing in the mainstream Washington establishment magazine, Foreign Policy. Although the bombs did force an immediate end to the war, Japan's leaders, Japan's leaders had wanted to surrender anyway and likely would have done so before the American invasion planned for November 1st. Their use was therefore unnecessary. So why did they do it if it was unnecessary? It was to prevent the Soviet Union from having influence in Japan. And this is a very long article. He goes into detail explaining the scale of the bombing and the brutal U.S. Uh, Air Force bombing of Japan. 68 cities in Japan were attacked and all of them were either partially or completely destroyed. Over 80% of the buildings in Japan were destroyed. 1.7 million Japanese people, these are civilians we're talking about, were made homeless. 300,000 Japanese civilians were killed. 750,000 Japanese civilians were wounded. 66 of these air raids carried out by the U.S. Army Air Force were carried out with conventional bombs, two with atomic bombs. So brutal U.S. bombing. But obviously, this isn't in any way to, to whitewash the horrific crimes committed by the Japanese fascists. As I spent an hour talking about, the U.S. government recruited those Japanese fascists. So the scholar talks about why the U.S. nuclear bombing of Japan was not necessary to force Japan to have unconditional surrender. So he says, if the Japanese were not concerned with city bombing in general, or the atomic bombing of Hiroshima in particular, what were they concerned with? The answer is simple, the Soviet Union. They were afraid of a Soviet all-out invasion of Japan. He writes that the question was not whether to continue, but how to bring the war to a close under the best terms possible. So the U.S. government wanted Japan to be its colony on the best terms possible. So he writes, one way to gauge whether it was the bombing of Hiroshima or the invasion and declaration of war by the Soviet Union that caused Japan's surrender is to compare the way in which these two events affected the strategic situation. After Hiroshima was bombed on August 6th, both options for, were still alive for Japan. Bombing Hiroshima did not foreclose either of Japan's strategic options. The impact of the Soviet declaration of war and the Soviet invasion of Manchuria was quite different, however. Once the Soviet Union declared war on Japan, Stalin could no longer act as a mediator. He was now a belligerent, so the diplomatic option for Japan was wiped out by the Soviet move. The effect on the military situation was equally dramatic. When the Russians invaded Manchuria, they sliced through what had once been an elite army, and many Russian units only stopped when they ran out of gas. The Soviet, un Soviet invasion invalidated the, the Japanese military's decisive battle strategy just as it invalidated the Japanese diplomatic strategy. At a single stroke, the Soviet Union uh, evaporated all of Japan's options. The Soviet invasion was strategically decisive. It foreclosed both of Japan's options, that is, the military option and the diplomatic option, while the bombing of Hiroshima was not decisive. It did not foreclose either of Japan's options of military solution or diplomacy. That is, the Soviet Union is what defeated Japan, not the Soviet invasion, not the U.S. bombing. The U.S. bombing was to prevent Japan 
from becoming an ally of the Soviet Union and becoming socialist. And he writes, again, this is Foreign Policy Magazine, as mainstream as it gets. Attributing the end of the war to the atomic bomb served Japan's interest in multiple ways, but it also served U.S. interests. If the atomic bomb won the war, then the perception of U.S. military power would be enhanced. U.S. diplomatic influence in Asia and around the world would increase. So this is part of the narrative of the U.S. empire. The narrative is the U.S. ended World War II with the nuclear bombs, which were supposedly necessary, even though the U.S. government internally admitted that the atomic bombing was actually not necessary. And that helped strengthen the U.S. empire around the world, and especially in Asia, and it prevented Japan from going socialist, and it prevented Japan from becoming an ally of the Soviet Union. And I should say that the, leader, the leaders of the resistance against Nazism in Europe, the leaders of the resistance against Italian fascism in Europe were the communists. And similarly, in Japan, the leaders of the anti-fascist resistance were socialists, unified by the Japan Socialist Party. If the U.S. had not turned Japan into a colony, if it had not militarily occupied Japan from 1945 until 1952, and then created a right-wing puppet regime, which has controlled Japan since 1955 in a one-party right-wing regime dominated by the LDP party, the Liberal Democratic Party, the right-wing party of Shinzo Abe and his grandfather, the, the fascist war criminal. If the U.S. had not done all of that, the most likely historical scenario is that Japan would have gone socialist. That is what is likely would have happened. That's likely is what, what would have happened. Japan would have gone socialist it would have become an ally of the Soviet Union, and then it would have become an ally of, of the People's Republic of China when the communists took over in 1949. So you would have the Soviet Union, Japan, and China as three massive communist superpowers. That is why the U.S. massacred 200,000 Japanese civilians by dropping the, the nuclear bombs to prevent Japan from going socialist. Here he had says, if on the other hand, the Soviet entry into the war was what caused Japan to surrender, then the Soviets could claim that they were able to do in four days what the United States was unable to do in four years. The perception of Soviet military power and Soviet diplomatic influence would be enhanced. And once the Cold War, that is the first Cold War, was underway, asserting that the Soviet entry had been the decisive factor would have been tantamount to giving aid and comfort to the enemy. So the U.S. atomic bomb did not beat Japan. The Soviet Union defeated Japan in World War II. Finally, I have spent a very long time, obviously, on this video. I'm going to conclude drawing it back together, tying together this history of the World War II atrocities in the Japanese fascist empire and the U.S. recruitment of them back to Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe, when he was in power as the longest ever serving prime minister of Japan, he continued many of these crimes in the vein of the Japanese fascist empire. Here is a very good thread by No Lutol, which is a Korean anti-imperialist organization. They point out that Shinzo Abe was an apologist for imperial Japan's war crimes and supported U.S. imperialist efforts in the Asia Pacific. I talked about Nippon Kaigi, how 15 of his 18 members 
members of his cabinet, 15 of the 18 ministers in his government were members of this fascist cult. I talked about how he praised his fascist grandfather, Nobusuke Kishi, who became a U.S.-backed prime minister in Japan in the 1950s. Shinzo Abe also visited the Yasukuni Shrine, which honors Japanese war criminals who carried out genocide in Korea and China. He refused to acknowledge Japan's role in the sexual slavery of women across Asia. He refused to provide support and reparations to Korea. In 2018, a Korean court, South Korea's Supreme Court, issued the opinion that Japanese corporations must, that use slave labor from Korea during World War II must pay reparations. In response, Shinzo Abe declared a trade war on South Korea. Under Shinzo Abe, the Japanese government uh, discriminated against Koreans who were in Japan. He also targeted Okinawa, which is under U.S. military occupation, into, uh, in addition to being colonized by the Japanese empire. In 2019, Shinzo Abe relocated a U.S. military base in Okinawa, despite over 70% of the people voting against it. So once again, it shows that this far-right authoritarian regime in Japan is not democratic. It goes against the wishes of the democratic people, the democratic will of the people of Japan, and it does so in order to strengthen U.S. imperialism in addition to Japanese fascism. So Shinzo Abe upheld U.S. imperialism in Asia, taking a hard line against North Korea and China. He actively contributed to the, continuing the legacy of Japanese colonialism by erasing Japan's war crimes committed against enslaved Koreans and against the people of China and Indonesia and Vietnam and Myanmar and the Philippines. His Liberal Democratic Party, the, the right-wing party, using, used assassination to accuse opponents of being traitors and he used political violence. And now Japan continues the U.S. military occupation. Here's an article from 2022 from March. Japan approves five more years, five years more funding for U.S. military presence as China, Russia, and North Korea so-called threats loom large. Japan approved an $8.6 billion five-year host, host nation support budget running through 2027, integrating the, these far-right fascistic Japanese forces with the U.S. empire in order to threaten China, North Korea, and Russia. Donald Trump actually wanted to increase it even further to $8 billion annually. It shows how this is thoroughly bipartisan. The Biden administration pushed this through. The Trump administration wanted something even more. The, in 2004, the U.S. Department of Defense calculated that, that Japan covers nearly 75% of the cost of stationing U.S. troops in the country. The U.S. still has about 55,000 troops deployed in Japan at more than half a dozen bases and other facilities. So the U.S. is still militarily occupying Japan, and J Japan is a key ally in the new Cold War on both Russia and China. I wrote an article about this, partially about this in Multipolarista.com. In fact, I have a separate video and podcast about this. The article is titled, NATO's 2022 Plan Declares Second Cold War on Russia and China. And in this, I point out that at the NATO Madrid Summit in Spain this June, 
Japan's prime minister, the current prime minister, Fumio Kishida, attended the NATO summit, the summit of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We saw that numerous countries in the Pacific region, including Japan and South Korea, attended the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which, of course, is a U.S. imperialist cartel that exists to keep Europe subordinated to the U.S. empire and prevent them from allying with Russia. And in this new plan, the 2022 so-called strategic concept, which I talk about in this report, NATO basically declares a new Cold War on both Russia and China. You can see the G7 summit here, which brings together six rich, wealthy, white imperialist countries, including the U.S., Britain, France, Canada, uh, Italy, and Germany, along with Japan. So Jam is, Japan is part of this imperialist alliance. Japan is also part of the, the new Cold War on Russia. In fact, in April, Japan's government removed Ukraine's neo-Nazi Azov battalion from its list of neo-Nazi organizations. It stopped recognizing th these Ukrainian neo-Nazis as neo-Nazis. Japan also joined the U.S. and Europe in imposing sanctions on Russia, joining the new Cold War on Russia. So finally concluding this very long episode, that explains why the U.S. government has created this far-right uh, contingency within Japanese politics, cultivating it, people like Shinzo Abe. That is why Japan has been still under U.S. military occupation since 1945, still with 55,000 U.S. troops. That is why Japan has been a, an authoritarian right-wing one-party state since 1955. It's because Japan is a U.S. proxy, and it is used by the U.S. to wage this, as in the first Cold War, to wage the first Cold War against the Soviet Union and China. And today, the U.S. allies with Japan to wage the new Cold War on China and Russia. In fact, Shinzo Abe was one of the founders of the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, the Quad, which is the U.S.-led military alliance against China in the Pacific, bringing together the U.S., Australia, um, India, and Japan. Shinzo Abe is the one that helped revive the Quad and turn it into an anti-China alliance. Shinzo Abe was a key ally of the U.S. empire in its new Cold War on China, and we see today that, that Japan is continuing joining in in the new Cold War on Russia as well. That is why the U.S. rehabilitated these Nazis, these Nazi collaborators and fascist war criminals after World War II, who carried out these horrific experiments that I was talking about, who carried out genocide across Asia. The U.S. empire has worked with these fascist forces to expand its hegemony across the planet. And now, today, Japan is a key ally in the U.S. new Cold War to prevent China and Russia from challenging U.S. unipolar domination of the world. It's all about empire. It's all about preventing countries from being independent and having an independent economic model, like the Chinese socialist economic model or the Russian Federation state-led economic nationalist model, which is capitalist, but the many, many of the most important companies in Russia are owned by the state. 
The largest banks are owned by the state. The natural resources are owned by the state and managed by state-owned companies. It's the U.S. is trying to impose its neoliberal capitalist model around the world, and Japan is part of that imperial war on independent economic models that challenge hegemony of the United States and Europe and Japan that used to be known as the triad. Japan, the United States, and Europe was the imperialist triad. And today, Japan plays a very similar role. So this is a very long episode, but with the killing of Shinzo Abe, the very tragic killing, I wanted to provide that historical context because Shinzo Abe was not a hero. He was a villain. And the assassination of him is horrible. It is very tragic. And as I said earlier, I am very much against the assassination. I'm not in any way endorsing it. In fact, I think it was a very bad thing because it's now going to strengthen these very same far-right elements within Japanese society. It's going to strengthen the move to bring back this fascist history in Japan. It's going to strengthen the very same forces in Nopunkaigi, these ultra-nationalists who are trying to rewrite the history of Japanese imperialism. It's going to strengthen their attempt to remilitarize. And Shinzo Abe was part of a, a key part of the attempt to rewrite the pacifist constitution in Japan, to remilitarize Japan, to bring back the Japanese empire. All of those horrible things, the, 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 the move toward fascism in Japan and the West is going to be strengthened by this assassination. So I think the assassination is very tragic on many levels. But Shinzo Abe was not a hero. This video, or if you're listening to the podcast version, explains who the real Shinzo Abe was. And he was the grandson of a former fascist war criminal and Nazi collaborator, and he very much followed in his footsteps with the staunch backing of the U.S. empire in order to wage the new Cold War on China. So with that said, if you were watching this, there's a podcast version that's going to be available as always. And for anyone who wants to get access to the links of all of the sources I cited in this video, I have a lot of sources. I spent a lot of time preparing the research for this video and podcast. If you go to multipolarisa.com, I will have a link to all of the sources. If you also look at the video in the top, all of the sources have the URL. I made sure to include that with all the sources. And below in the description of the video or the podcast, I will have a link to the article at multipolarisa.com with all of the sources cited in this video or podcast. If you want to support this work that I do, this research that I do, it takes a lot of time and energy, and I don't get paid for it because I run my own media outlet. So the only payment I get is from donations. So if you want to support this work I do, you can go to multipolarista.com support, or you can become a, Patreon, a patron over at Patreon. That is patreon.com slash multipolarista. Any money that you can give, you know, a dollar or two a month, any money that you give really helps to support this work. I can't do this work without the support that I enjoy from my audience. And I want to thank everyone. If you made it all the way to the end of this extremely long episode, I hope you learned something. I hope, you know, it, it can help change people's perspectives about geopolitics and the world we live in. So with that said, I will see you next time. Thanks a lot.